You are listening to the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 38 of the Coffee House Classical Music Podcast. My name is Asa. And I'm Allison. And on this holiday special of an episode for episode 38 of the Coffee House Classical, we are returning to Tchaikovsky and tackling one of his most famous works, and something that I know you have heard as we celebrate Christmas Eve. Yes, we are looking at the Nutcracker Suite today. We'll talk about everything that goes into making this iconic piece of music a little bit later, but first let's talk about the man, the myth. Well, he's not really a myth, he existed. <laughs> Peter Chilyich Tchaikovsky was born in 1840 during a pivotal time in Russian history. He understood and loved music from a very early age, apparently beginning early compositions as early as age four. Take that, Mozart. Ah, but when he was five, he was finally allowed to actually take piano lessons. His teacher taught him the piano works of Frederick Chopin, which quite the works for a young lad to be working on. Oh, yes. Yeah. Interestingly, when Tchaikovsky was young, Russia didn't have a music conservatory yet, so his parents directed him more on the path towards civil service by sending him away to the Imperial School of Jurisprudence. In 1854, Tchaikovsky's mother died from cholera, and this was devastating to him, and he carried his sadness from this event through the rest of his life, and it's speculated that much of his creative output is written about her. But during all this time, Tchaikovsky was still working on learning music and was eventually given lessons by the prestigious pianist Rudolf Kundinger and later singing by Luigi Piccioli. As we mentioned, Tchaikovsky was living in a pivotal time in Russian music history. When he first set out to school, there was no way for him to gain a music education within Russia. However, in 1859, the Russian Music Society was formed in St. Petersburg, and Tchaikovsky became one of their first star pupils after he started attending in 1861. Then, shortly after that, the St. Petersburg Conservatory opened, and Tchaikovsky made the decision to dedicate his life to music. He graduated from the conservatory in 1865. By this time, the Russian Music Society had expanded from St. Petersburg all the way over to Moscow. Tchaikovsky then went there to teach, and then it became the Moscow Conservatory. Kind of like Tchaikovsky was a (laughs) conservatory wizard. Now, in Moscow, Tchaikovsky made good friends with Nikolai Rubinstein, and he found teaching difficult, but his friendships outweighed the stress, and so he wrote his first symphony, subtitled Winter Daydreams in 1866. As the years went by, Tchaikovsky became a household name both in Russia and abroad, and by the time he premiered his third symphony, it received immediate recognition in Russia, and his piano concerto number one was an immediate hit when it was first performed in Boston. Despite Tchaikovsky being so well-loved now, and one of the most well-known Russian composers, during his life he received very mixed reviews. The Mighty Five, consisting of Russian composers Cesar Kui, Alexander Borodin, Mily Balakarev, Modest Mussorgsky, and of course Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov never really liked him. And this gets back really to our common topic of nationalism. The Mighty Five were the nationalists, and their music was distinctly Russian. 
So when you listen to it, it really sounds grand and dark and I think kind of even more powerful than the Germans at times. Yeah, if you want to hear more about what makes Russian music distinctly Russian, listen back to our episode on Miley Balakarev. Now, however, Tchaikovsky himself was more of an internationalist. The conservatory setup was brought to Russia via Western ideals, sort of modeled on Paris conservatories, things like that, and the music taught there was for the most part non-Russian. So even though the Mighty Five and Tchaikovsky were all living and composing during the exact same time period, we do hear very different styles between them. Tchaikovsky also had a tumultuous time with his personal relationships, given the social confines of the time and his suspected homosexuality. However, he did have a semi-permanent relationship with Nadeska von Meck, which was his wealthy patron. Though they exchanged numerous letters, she paid him an allowance, and he dedicated many works to her, the two never actually met. Mysteriously, von Meck's money eventually ran out. She notified Tchaikovsky that she would no longer be providing his allowance and actually stopped communicating with him, but it seems that Tchaikovsky really did enjoy their relationship for more than just the money, and he fell into a deep despair once the correspondence stopped, as only a true friend would. However, he didn't let that stop his brilliant composition work. Interestingly, his international fame had grown so much that at this time in 1891, he was actually invited to conduct the inaugural concert at Carnegie Hall in New York. And despite the mixed reviews he received in Russia, he seems to be one of the few composers who truly enjoyed fame during his lifetime. And in 1892, he then premiered our focus piece for today, The Nutcracker. This, however, was one of the few pieces that Tchaikovsky put out that wasn't really well-liked right away, and we'll get to more on that later. Sadly, the Nutcracker would be amongst his last works. In 1893, a cholera epidemic was again making its way through St. Petersburg, where he was once again living. He fell ill and died four days later. That is morbidly ironic. Sadly, yes. So, on to the Nutcracker itself. The ballet, as we mentioned, was premiered in 1892. And apparently, Tchaikovsky preemptively selected movements he thought would be popular and assembled them into the Nutcracker Suite, which is what we'll be looking at today. Despite this preparation of so-called popular parts, Tchaikovsky felt that even before the premiere of the work that it was just so-so. And this feeling was matched, or even surpassed, by the critics who claimed it had no plot, which granted is true for the second act at least, when everyone is just showing off in Fairyland, and also that the music was trite. However, the Nutcrackers fits our modern appeal much better. For many people, the ballet or the sweet music is some of the only classical music they know by heart. And even though there isn't much of a story, ballet companies still get to put on a great show that millions of people go to see each Christmas. All in all, The Nutcracker is a work that now bridges the gap between the arts and the public. Since so many people are familiar with what The Nutcracker sounds like, but might not be sure of what goes on behind the music, we're going to take this opportunity to point out some really difficult spots in the music. And many of these spots are kind of a rite of passage kind of spot for young musicians. So while most of the work is quite doable for even middle school musicians, there are a few tricky places that have the possibility to trip up even the professionals. The Nutcracker Suite starts out with an overture that is just that, sweet. The strings come in with this familiar melody. 
However, violas have quite the task just eight measures into the piece, playing some very brisk 16th notes, but they are really just a background effect. But boy, do conductors get mad when those notes aren't just perfect. (laughs) (laughs) The overture also contains some dubious offbeat rhythms. Listen here to the slightly unpredictable pizzicato strings and later the woodlands. the well-known march. This again has some rhythmic challenges. The second part of the intro phrase has what sounds like an easy lilting rhythm, but what's actually written is a 16th note, two 16th at rest, and another pickup 16th note. Without proper counting, this can easily turn into a too laid-back triplet feel that is simply not stately enough according, once again, to the conductors. (laughs) Also, we are beginning to get the hint that Tchaikovsky likes staccato 16th notes. For the trio section of this march, we have the flutes and clarinets in unison playing a rather tricky 16th note line. So by this point, you know you're in for a long night of articulation. (laughs) After the march, we get to the iconic Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy. This movement is actually one of the easier ones, unless you are the celeste player, which are the tingly bell sounds that dominate this movement. Possibly the hardest part for the orchestra on this one is the bass, and later B-flat clarinets are brave enough to essentially interrupt the celeste solo. It takes guts to play that loud and low in such a delicate atmosphere. And now we come to a crowd favorite, the Russian Dance, also known as the Trepak. And once you get this one down, it really is a piece of cake, but learning it can be a bugger. There are actually a lot more notes in it than it sounds like. For instance, during a performance in the second part of the phrase, the audience will only tend to hear or be focused on the quarter notes in the brass. However, if you listen closely to the strings and woodwinds, they're actually the same line, but with added 16th notes that jump around quite a lot. In addition, in younger groups, the brass tend to get really excited about finally having the melody, and they rush, which makes the strings and woodwinds job to fit all those notes in even harder. Next is the mellow and mysterious Arabian dance. The viola and cello sections get a rare treat of starting this moving off with a really interesting motif that is simply jumping octaves on unexpected beats. (laughs) 
They have to be good counters, however, because that's all they get to play for an entire 60 measures, most of the movement. And towards the end, the clarinet gets a sultry low solo. But the bassoons are written abnormally high during the same part. Now, since both the first and second bassoons are written near the extremity of their upper range, tuning this section can be a real hassle, but it creates some very exciting and mysterious sounds. get to something more upbeat again, this time in the form of the Chinese dance. But once again, counting is a must. This time, the bassoons get subjected to Tchaikovsky's minimalist tendencies by playing the same bass line for the entire movement. However, the spotlight is on the solo flute for this one, and what makes this line hard is the range. It starts and ends fairly low, but the middle is quite high, but the whole line needs to be heard equally, again according to conductors, and this presents <laughs> possible air and tone problems for the flutist, but these are generally overcome by a gentle reminder from the conductor. <laughs> Speaking of flutes, they're yet again featured in the next dance of the reed flutes. Though we have running 16th notes here, the tempo is quite moderate, so they're really no problem. But what is problematic is following the artistic wishes of the conductor, or during a ballet, the dancers. Tchaikovsky himself didn't write in any tempo changes, but it is very common practice to do a slight ritardando entering the second statement of the phrase. And this is difficult for flutes because they have the 32nd notes written, which already makes it hard to determine when to actually place them. Also, the violins up to this point have not been playing, and now all they have is a dotted 8 16th without even a downbeat. And as a result, if the orchestra doesn't follow along carefully, everyone could end up playing their own tempo, and the whole piece can fall apart. And our last movement is the Waltz of the Flowers. This first tricky bit is a clarinet solo, and while it's fundamentally easy, the range it's written in is actually particularly challenging. Most of the notes in this solo span what's known as the break of the clarinet, which is where a register key is hit to change the harmonic frequency and thus play higher notes. And while it sounds like just another key to press, it's actually a major practice point in all clarinet technique methods, and here Tchaikovsky forces a clarinetist to be good at it. And as a dance, the Waltz of the Flowers is also supposed to have some forward momentum. However, the writing itself can make that difficult in some places. Take, for instance, the main refrain of the piece. 
the strings play a sighing pattern going from a high note to a lower note. However, the lower note is on beat 3, which should be a strong pickup to the next measure in a waltz. As a result, an unskilled orchestra is at high risk for losing momentum, but a skilled group of musicians can make a very exciting and unique dance. seems to be going great until Tchaikovsky throws in a key change. <laughs> he also adds some rhythmic intensity here by going really at it with a hemiola, which is a two against three feel, and a really challenging rising and quasi-chromatic line in the woodwinds and violins. tricky and almost mind-bending line isn't played well and brought out, then the wonderful waltz conclusion really never builds up to a satisfying enough energy. When the waltz concludes, so does the Nutcracker Suite. So, next time you're at a live Nutcracker performance, or if, like many of us, you've heard several this holiday season... (laughs) or even just in commercials. Remember these spots and how hard the orchestra worked to make them perfect just for you and just for the holiday season. So we do hope that if you are celebrating the holidays right now that you will have wonderful festivities and that the rest of your winter breaks are wonderful and going into the new year speaking of the new year we will not be having an episode released on the 31st we released this one early just for the holiday season yes just to get you a christmas happy time (laughs) for uh just for christmas eve we will not be releasing on the 31st of december but we will be back on january 14th of 2018 So thank you very much for listening to the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast. And if you like what we do and can't wait for our return any longer, you can listen to our back catalog, share it with a friend, or leave us a review on iTunes. For the Coffeehouse Classical Music Podcast, I'm Allison. And I am Asa. Thank you so much for listening, and happy holidays to all. And we will see you next year. Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite was performed by the DuPage Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Barbara Schubert. You can subscribe to The Coffeehouse on iTunes and Google Play, or directly download from our website, coffeehouseclassical.podbean.com. Be sure to like us on Facebook, or send us emails at coffeehouseclassical at gmail.com. Music